Our Old Testament reading this evening is Joshua chapter 8. We're continuing on in our, our series here, our evening series in Joshua. So Joshua chapter 8, we'll read the whole chapter. Let's give our full attention, brothers and sisters, to God's very word. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I've given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And it will come about when they come out against us as at the first, that we shall flee before them. They will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them. Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be when you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord, you shall do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua, therefore, sent them out. And they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near, and they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people, at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all of Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he'd stretched out his hand. And they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. So they had no power to flee this way or that way. And the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. Now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. 
But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and when they had fallen, when they had all fallen by this edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the spear until he'd utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read, before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Thanks be to God. For his word. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, uh, we ask that we would not be wise in our own eyes, but would seek the wisdom that you alone have, that we would sit at Christ's feet, and that he would teach us by his word now. This we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. Last time we were in Joshua. In chapter 7, we saw there the catastrophic fallout of covenant faithlessness. We saw the consequences, the horrible consequences, of being faithless to God's covenant, of, of disobedience. And we saw there what a warning that is to us. Uh, what a warning it is to us, what it teaches us about sin, about the seriousness of the weight of sin. Our, our culture is so flippant about sin. We, we shrug at sin, don't we, in our day? We don't have a concept of, of sinning against God. We might have some idea, our, our culture has an idea of, of uh, treading on each other's uh, so-called sovereign individuality, right? We don't, that's, that's the one sin in our culture, trespassing on someone's, uh, on someone's uh, uh, sense of self. But we don't have a sense of sinning against God in our culture. Our, our culture shrugs that sin and says, who cares about God and His holiness? 
And that's not just an attitude that's in the culture, it's an attitude that's ingrained in the human heart after the fall. It's ingrained in our hearts, brothers and sisters. Too much of the time, isn't it, that, that, that it's, it's, it, it's, it's our nature just to, to think little of sin and not to take it seriously. And the book of Joshua, especially chapter 7, which we saw last time, and chapter 8, again tonight, uh, is a call for us to reckon with the seriousness of sin. And, 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 and it's, a, it's a reminder to us of the importance of holiness, pursuing holiness. Uh, this, this, this stuff about the seriousness of sin, the importance of holiness, is often, I think, uh, looked at as an Old Testament thing. Something relegated to the archives of dusty Old Testament history. Uh, but it's just as much there in the New Testament as well. We, we see it uh, all over the place in the New Testament. We see this in Hebrews twelve fourteen: Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is absolutely necessary for salvation. No, my holiness cannot be the cause of my salvation, but it must be the result of God's salvation at work in me. So, do we take these things seriously? Are we striving after holiness? Striving to put sin to death and and walk in holiness before the Lord? Walk in covenant faithfulness to our covenant Lord? That's what this text is about, together with chapter 7. It's it's in conversation, I think, with chapter 7. It's clearly part of the context. This is what God's goal for us, I believe, in this passage to call us to, to encourage us in covenant faithfulness to Him. Uh, it, it, it reminds us of, of His covenant relationship with us, and it, and it calls us to remember what our covenant obligations are to Him as our Lord. So let's consider this now, the text here before us in these two, these two sections. First, the Lord's commitment to His people. That's what we see first in verses 1 to 29. And then what that leads to, the people's commitment to the Lord. So first, God's commitment to his people. This is verses 1 through 29. As we begin, it's important that we remember the context. Um, so uh, Joshua chapter 7 is, is where the people uh, suffer a terrible defeat at the hands of Ai. It was supposed to be an easy battle. Joshua sends out to the little city of Ai some spies. They come back, say it's nothing to worry about. Send two or three thousand guys up there. We'll wipe it out. No problem. Um, they've just defeated Jericho. They're riding high after that victory. Uh, AI shouldn't be much trouble. But, but then they, they go up and they're routed. Uh, they're defeated easily. They flee before the men of AI. They only lose 36 lives. But, but, but spiritually, they're deeply shaken, troubled by this. They're devastated. And you can imagine them thinking, was, was Jericho just... Uh, an accident, an anomaly? Has, has God abandoned us? Has he brought us into the land just to, just to let us perish here? Of course, it's not the case. One of their own has sinned. Uh, we read there of Achan. He, he goes into uh, Jericho in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the wake of this great victory, and he takes what belongs to God for himself. And the people find out about this in chapter 7. And this is why we just lost this battle, because one of our own broke the covenant, even as the Lord of the covenant was giving us the victory, giving us the promised land. One of our own. You know, I I imagine that this generation of Israelites, which saw their parents so faithless in the wilderness and struck down for it, uh, you know, maybe this new generation will be different. But no sooner 
are they in the promised land. No sooner are they enjoying victory than one of their own is sinning, breaking the covenant. Achan is sin, so, so they have to execute him. They have to, um, they have to devote him to destruction, even as Jericho was devoted to destruction. And so at the end of chapter 7, it tells us that God's wrath has turned away from them now, but, but the people are still shaken. Is God really going to bless us? Maybe we're on some kind of probation now where we have to prove ourselves again to God before he'll bless us and be with us. So God says to Joshua in this context, chapter 8, verse 1, don't be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. God is once again reassuring his people here. He's he's drawing near to them and reminding them that he's the one in control, that he is gracious to them. We hear this echo of chapter 1 here, where God tells Joshua, don't be afraid. Chapter 1, he told him, be strong and courageous. He's saying it again. Don't fear the enemy, Joshua. I am with you, not halfway. You're not on probation. I am with you to give you the victory. Do not fear. And notice what he says to Joshua here. He tells him, I have given into your hand the king of Ai. So there's no question. There should be no question in Joshua's mind. This is as good as done for the Lord. And, and uh, the Lord emphasizes here to Joshua that the totality of victory that Joshua will have. He says, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. It's like he's just piling those things on. He could have just said, I've given the king of Ai into your hand, but he's saying the king, his people, his city, and his land to emphasize to Joshua the certainty and totality of this victory. And he says in verse 2, And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Joshua needs to have no doubt at all in his mind that this victory is absolutely certain. The battle is already won. So he needs to turn from fear and lead the people. There's a wonderful reassurance for us here, dear ones. Um, what, if, what if we've sinned? What if, what if we have sinned or some, what member of our church has sinned grievously against the Lord? We've, we, we've repented for it, but, but do we, are we on probation? Do we need to, to prove ourselves to the Lord again? That's often, I think, how my heart works. I have the sense of needing to prove myself to God again after I've sinned against Him. But the Lord will not have it. There is no penance here. He, he has, atonement has been made. We, forgiveness, repentance has happened. And now the Lord says, I am with you. Do not fear. I'm, I am with you. There is no halfway. And brothers and sisters, for us, has not atonement for our sin been made once for all in Christ? Was not Christ uh, uh, utterly destroyed, devoted to destruction, even as Achan was? Not for his sin, but for ours. And if, if we have truly repented of our sin, we do not need to fear, but can walk in confidence and obey the Lord in confidence and not fear the power of our indwelling sin. Even if we've lost to it before, not fear it because the Lord is with us and he'll give us the victory. So God, God reassures us. God reassures Joshua and the people of Israel here in this way. And he tells Joshua that there's going to be something different about this conflict 
And uh, this is a word of encouragement, no doubt, to Joshua and the people. In verse 2, he tells him that he will enjoy the spoil of this battle. Previously, in, in uh, the battle with Jericho, they weren't allowed to take the spoil. It was all to be devoted to the Lord. But now, God is saying, this is going to be my gift to you, Israel. God is, God is being gracious and generous with them. He's giving them the fruits of this victory. That which Achan, in his impatience, took for himself sinfully, God is now granting his people in his time, graciously. And so God, again, he's reassuring his people of his grace and faithfulness to them here. And then, then he gives Joshua, then the Lord gives Joshua the strategy. He commands him to set an ambush uh, for Ai. And what we, what we see here, once again, is that it is God who is leading the fight, leading the conquest. We saw this earlier, with, again, with the Battle of Jericho. Before that battle happens, the commander of the Lord's army appears, and, and he commands Joshua, uh, not the other way around. Joshua says, are you with us or the enemy? And, and the commander of the army of the Lord says, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And, and it's, it's saying, the Lord is the one who is waging this battle. What matters is being on his side. And again here, the Lord is giving Joshua all this reason for confidence. And then he says, and now here's the strategy. He's saying, Joshua, I'm in charge. I'm in control. I am going to fight this battle. But at the same time, he then, he, he's commanding Joshua to do something. We, 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 uh, we, we see here that uh, right after God tells Joshua not to be afraid, he tells him to go and, and do something. He commands him to go muster the troops, go to battle, take action. And then we see Joshua do that in verses 3 to 9. He goes, he passes the instructions that God has given him on to the troops, gives them the strategy, this, this ambush they're going to set, where they're going to draw out Ai's forces and have this other uh, force come in and overwhelm the city. So they have a part to play. Uh, God gives his people a command. They have actions they have to do. They have to march, hide, fight. The, yes, the battle belongs to the Lord. But at the same time, they have to follow the command God has given to them. Um, There's a famous phrase by Oliver Cromwell that captures this idea well. Trust in God and keep your powder dry. That's the idea that that is here, that that they are to trust 100% in the Lord fighting for them. But they have to do the part he's commanded them. And there's a lesson for us here. It's easy to say the battle belongs to the Lord and to say, so we should let go and let God, as the expression is. But I don't think that's biblical. We should say, um, no, we need to trust in the Lord and do the part he's called us to play by the strength he gives us. We can't take a laissez-faire approach to holiness and our fight against sin. We saw this earlier in Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, where Paul is weaving these two ideas together, isn't he? He's saying... It's the strength of the Lord. It's his might. It's his armor. But put it on and take it up and stand. So there's an imperative, even as there's a promise. And this text here is, uh, is the same in, in story form. Don't fear. God is giving you the victory. But now go and fulfill his command. So the ambush that God commanded is, is planned. It's... Uh, this, this, uh, in verses 3 to 9, a mighty force is sent out at night under cover of darkness. They go, they lie and wait behind Ai. Then in verses 10 to 17, we see the trap that's been planned is now set. 
in verses 10 to 17. So Joshua takes this, uh, the rest of the fighting force that's not part of the ambush. He takes them. They go to Ai. Morning dawns. The king of Ai looks out, and uh, he sees Joshua there with the army of Israel. And, and the king of Ai expects that the easy victory they had last time is about to be repeated. So they take the bait that has been set. He leads his men out of the city. The text makes a point to tell us that they hasten, they hurry out of the city. They're eager to go and crush Israel. And they, in their, in their eagerness and excitement, they leave the city completely vulnerable and defenseless. The neighboring town of Bethel uh, also sends its men out to attack. And the Israelites run from them, uh, pretending to be terrified, drawing the men of Ai away from the city. So the trap's been set, and then in verses 18 to 29, the trap uh, that was set is now sprung. We see that the, it's the Lord again, the one who commanded this strategy, who, who, who springs the trap in verse 18. He tells Joshua, Stretch out the spear that's in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. It's the Lord again commanding him. Joshua does this, and immediately the men uh, hiding in ambush rush towards the city, overwhelm it, and, and uh, uh, kill all those remaining in it and burn it with fire. You can imagine that the surprise and terror that would have been uh, filling the men of Ai as they turned and saw the smoke of the city. Their city, their homes burning behind them. And then the men in front of them whom they're pursuing turning and attacking them and they're suddenly uh, surrounded and being cut off and cut down. The Lord is with the armies of Israel. None of them escape, the text tells us. 12,000 men and women, young and old, die. The entire city goes up in flames like a sacrifice. It's a memorial to the horror of sin and the wrath of God. Special attention is given to the fate of the king of Ai. Remember how in verse 1, God told Joshua the king is in his hand already. Well, here in verses 23 and 29, we see the promise there fulfilled. The king is saved alive. He's brought to Joshua. Joshua has him hanged on a tree, we're told. He's lifted up as a spectacle of the consequences of sin. And he's shown to be accursed by God. We're, we're given this specifically from Deuteronomy 21-23. A hanged man is accursed by God, that says. It's Joshua is showing this man has God's curse upon him because of his sin. They take him down. They bury him. This great heap of stones, a memorial once more to God's wrath against sin. And, and once again here, even as we saw with Joshua... Uh, this account of utter destruction and devastation. We see the cost of sin. We see the, the, the horrific nature of sin and, and what it deserves. And, and we're getting a picture of, of the end judgment of God. There, there's an inbreaking of God's final judgment into this moment in history, like, somewhat like the, the flood of Noah, this inbreaking of the end. Even as Israel's inheriting a type of the promised inheritance, so there's a type of the promised judgment here in Joshua. But if we, if we stop and consider the, 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 the level of destruction and devastation that's being told to us in these verses, it's hard to swallow, I think. It's hard for us to swallow. And we can read this and say, this can't be the same God of love, grace, and mercy that we see in the New Testament. That was 1400 B.C. That, things were more barbaric then. 
But brothers and sisters, what is the New Testament about uh, uh, other than God's curse falling on a man for his, uh, as he bears sins and that man being hanged on a tree? I mean, that's the very heart of the New Testament. About, about God pouring out his wrath on sin. And we see, so we, we see the wages of sin is still the same. It's still death. The one who sins is still accursed. God is holy. He cannot change. It's so easy for us to take our cues on the seriousness of sin and the importance of holiness, to take our cues from the culture or from our own heart and tendencies rather than from the Lord himself. Of course, I don't want sin to be a serious thing. Because if it is serious, then it means I have a serious problem before the Lord. We're all sinners. We're all under the wrath of God, under the curse, even as the king of Ai is here. Paul writes this in Galatians 3.10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. I belong where the king of Ai was because of my sin. So the, the solution is not to downplay sin and pretend it's no problem, but the solution is to, to, to look to the Lord. What, what was Israel looking to? What, what were they hoping? And as they see this devastation play out for sin, and they recognize the sin that's in themselves, well, they're, they're looking for atonement as well. They're looking for uh, a God to make a way for them. That's what all their sacrifices pointed to. We're going to see this in just a moment, that, that after this victory, in our second point, we'll look at this in more detail, but after this victory, they're going to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. They're going to offer a burnt offering to the Lord, an offering for their sin. And, and they were looking to the promised Messiah. That's whom we look to as well, the one who has made a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. See, the glorious good news that God brings us in his word is not that sin is no big deal, but that he has dealt with it in Christ, that, that Christ bore it and that he suffered in our place the, the wrath that we deserve. Think of the king of Ai there. He, he, we are not even given his name. He's degraded and demeaned. He's killed, he's hanged, he's buried. Think of the shame. That is what Christ became for us just like that, took on our sin and bore that wrath of God, made a memorial to the wrath of God. Because God uh, loved us and, 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 and desired to save us for himself. And so, brothers and sisters, even as the people of God, as they read this account in the Old Testament, should have seen once again God's commitment to them, his commitment to give them the victory, his commitment to show them mercy, that's what we should see here also. We should be reassured here that God is going to show us mercy and going to give us the victory once for all in Christ. Because we look to Christ and He's been made a curse for us. There's no wrath left for me. He's been raised for me. He is victorious over sin and over death and over Satan. And so we see writ large God's commitment to His covenant. And so we need to run to Him run to Him and be reassured and re renewed in His commitment to us, His commitment to His covenant in His Son. Well, in light of this, in light of God's renewed demonstration of His commitment to His people, 
we then see the, the people renew their, com- their commitment to him. God has recommitted himself to them in a, in a display of victory for them, and now we see them respond to his grace. And that's our second point, the people's commitment, their commitment to keep the Lord's law. This is verses 30 through 35. Everything so far in verses 1 to 29 has been building up to this. It's, it's been leading up to this. Um, this, is the, this is the point, the thrust, where this is where the weight of the passage really is. Uh, it's in this commitment of the people as they renew their covenant with the Lord. One of the central concerns of the whole book of Joshua is this idea of covenant faithfulness. Right? The Lord has, has saved his people from Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, brought them into a holy land, given them this land, and, and they are to be a holy people there. But the question that's hanging over them is, are they going to be faithful to him? Are they going to be faithful to the covenant that they are in with him? And we're going to see in the sequel to Joshua, uh, um, the book of Judges, that, that they're going to be tempted and drawn away from him in, their, in the covenant with him. So the book of Joshua is preparing them for these things. They need covenant faithfulness. They need holiness. And so, even as uh, this victory wraps up against Ai, the text focuses on uh, covenant holiness and faithfulness. We, we move from the heap of stones that's piled on the king of Ai to a, a heap of stones raised as an altar uh, on, a, on Mount Ebal. Uh, there's no uh, there's no lingering at the victory at AI. There's just a quick shift to um, Mount Ebal and, and what will happen there. It's a change that's pretty drastic. I think you may have noticed it as we read it. One commentator puts it like this. He says, suddenly the war movie is cut and we are left looking at a slide of a worship service. The situation is like the interruption of normal television programming with a special news bulletin. The news bulletin is deemed of sufficient importance and priority to preempt normal telecasting. By placing this covenant renewal ceremony here, the writer is saying that Israel's success does not primarily consist in knocking off Canaanites, but in everyone's total submission to the word of God. It is as if he is saying, stop the war and listen to the law of God. This is the most urgent matter right now. That's what this shift is telling us here. That's what this, this narrative of defeat at AI has been leading to. This, this, this defeat of AI, this repentance and victory that, they, that we see here, is showing Israel that committing yourself to the Word of God and conforming your life to the law of God is of first primary importance. So we see here, uh, Joshua goes, and he, the first thing that he does is he builds an altar on Mount Ebal. And he's offering, he's, he's following the law that God gives Moses back in Deuteronomy. The people are to offer sacrifices wherever they go in the new promised land. And, and uh, what kind of sacrifices do we see here? We see burnt offerings and peace offerings. And it's interesting, interesting that those are the two offerings that the people offer. The first is the burnt offering. That's, that's an offering for sin. And in a burnt offering, the whole sacrifice goes up in flames on the altar. The whole animal is consumed. Utter destruction, right? Utterly devoted to the Lord, just like Jericho and Ai have been. The burnt offering says, I deserve to be on that altar, totally consumed by the wrath of God for my sin, but God has provided a substitute for me because he loves me. 
The animal is the substitute pointing forward to Christ, the substitute. That's what the burnt offering signified. So even as the people come from this victory over Ai, where they have, where they have uh, devoted to destruction this city of Ai for its sin, they come and they offer up a substitute in their place because they know their guilt before God and their only hope is in the substitute He will provide. Then there's the peace offering. And the peace offering is, is different. Unlike the burnt offering, you didn't burn the entire offering on the altar. No, the peace offering was like a fellowship offering. It's a, 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 the, the person offering the offering would actually uh, eat most of it himself. And so this symbolized a, a meal that you ate with your God. This was, this was, uh, it symbolized fellowship and peace with the Lord. You're sharing a meal, as it were, with your covenant Lord. You're enjoying the blessings of covenant fellowship. So first they offer up this offering for sin. And then they enjoy fellowship with the Lord. You see how clearly the gospel is proclaimed in these sacrifices. We must have atonement for sin. We must have uh, a substitute. And we must have fellowship. That's the reward of it, right? Fellowship, peace with God. And this is what Christ brings. He's our burnt offering, utterly consumed for our sin, our substitute, And then he's our peace offering. In him we have fellowship with the Lord. And what this is teaching us is that if we are to live lives that are holy to the Lord, uh, covenantly uh, faithful lives, uh, then we must begin here with the gospel, with these first things, with, with who Christ is for us as our substitute and as our peace. Before Joshua moves forward with reading the law, the blessings and the curses and the requirements of the law, He offers a burnt offering and a peace offering, pointing us to Christ. There's another gospel route for obedience that we see here, and that's in the location where they are. Why why did Joshua, I wonder wonder this as I was reading the text, why why did Joshua bring the people 20 miles north of Ai here to this place between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim? Couldn't they just have had this altar and ceremony right there? Beside AI, why take the trouble of this journey of 20 miles uh, with all the people? The text makes a point of saying it's all the people. Everyone is there. Well, the place where they are is Shechem. And in Genesis 12, verses 6 to 7, Abraham is in Shechem. And God appears to him there and he says, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abraham built an altar. Altar there. And so now, all these years and generations later, the God has brought the people to the very place where he promised Abraham to give the people the land. And the people build an altar there. And they have covenant fellowship with God there. And God is showing them how faithful he is to his promise and these very details. So here they are at Shechem, this place which itself proclaims the grace and faithfulness of God. Here they are having offered these uh, sacrifices. And then Joshua writes on the stones a copy of God's law. The grace of God, the faithfulness of God, uh, enables and also demands Israel's obedience. So Joshua writes this copy of God's law. It's probably referring to the Ten Commandments, the summary of the covenant requirements that God gives based on his work of redemption. And then the people are divided in half. Half are on Mount Ebal, half on Mount Gerizim. Between them is the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the original copies, at least the second draft, perhaps, of the original copies of the Ten Commandments written on stone. And then Joshua 
uh, reads out the law. And, and the text tells us that everyone is here, all Israel. It says the stranger, the sojourner, the one who's among you, who's not a native Israelite, but who's also trusting in the Lord is here. So that includes Rahab and her family and others, presumably. Israelites by faith. And everyone's gathered in these two groups, and Joshua reads out the law. Then we're told here that he reads all the law. Verses 34 to 35 emphasize this. He read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read. He doesn't skip a word. Reads the whole of what God commands his people through Moses. You see the, you see the point, brothers and sisters. Everyone, native-born and, 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 and stranger, uh, 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 old and young, rich and poor, everyone is under this law that Joshua is reading. And, and every single word of this law, which he reads, every single word matters to them, matters personally to them. God is saying, this is the way you are to live. One commentator puts it like this. This law is not merely some official record from the archives, but a lively personal word for shaping the lives of housewives, kids, and hangers-on. All the people of God must give all obedience to all the word of God. This is Israel's first priority. Brothers and sisters, is that our first priority? Let me close this evening by, by calling you, in, in light of this text, to renewed covenant commitment to the Lord, renewed holiness to the Lord, to, 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 to consider God's commitment to you in the covenant and say, I need to commit myself to living a holy life before Him, to living under all His law that He has commanded me, uh, uh, to, to commit yourself to being a student of His law, to go, go and study the, the Ten Commandments. Read through the Ten Commandments. See what others have written on the Ten Commandments. The larger and shorter catechisms are wonderful places to, to go for that. Pray that, that God would teach you His law and write it on your heart and enable you to keep it. Give, give thought to what, what sin has a hold on you and, and, and what habits you need to get rid of and what habits you need to uh, grow in. Habits of holiness. The, the law of God is not dusty, old, and useless. It is relevant. Uh, as one author says, uh, the law of God is words to live by. This is to be our life. Study it, brothers and sisters, and live a life by it. It's easy for us to, uh, I think, just pursue a, a general holiness. But the Lord has given us a specific law, calling us to a specific obedience. So, don't, uh, so, so do this, but don't do it out of a sense that you have to earn God's favor or blessing. Don't do it out of a fear that you're on probation uh, until you have done a certain amount. And don't do it by your own strength. Do it by the grace that He gives, even as we see here. Do it in light of God's commitment to you. Uh, do it in light of Christ, in union with Christ, who is your... Uh, your, your burnt offering and your peace offering, the one who's kept this law perfectly for you. Let us, by His grace, learn this law, love His law, live by His law with our eyes fixed on our Savior. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God,